Hey everyone, I have a time-sensitive announcement to share with you. Earlier this month, LifeSite was hit with another online censorship attack, this time on TikTok, after publishing the truth about the corrupt administration in the United States. In fact, LifeSite is still permanently banned on Facebook, and our main YouTube channel was wiped out, which is why we are only on the John Henry Weston Show YouTube channel. So, this is because the prince of this world hates the truth, and we at LifeSite are committed to bringing you the fullness of the truth even if the globalists and atheists don't want you to hear it. To help us push forward with our truth-telling mission, I urge you to join us during this special Advent and Christmas season with your prayers and almsgiving. Help us at LifeSite build a culture of life for you, your children, your grandchildren, in the face of massive opposition. By uniting your prayers and your giving with us at LifeSite, you promote our pro-life and pro-family mission of building a culture of life around the world. In fact, when you support LifeSite, I urge you to write a prayer in our comment box. It's a perfect way to infuse your prayer and almsgiving with a charity like LifeSite that you can trust, knowing that we will personally read and pray over all your intentions. We need your prayers and almsgiving now more than ever. We at LifeSite must reach our end-of-the-year fundraising goal, and we have no corporate sponsor, which makes LifeSite's grassroots support from people like you miraculous. So please, as you listen to today's interview, click in the donation link at the top in the description of this video and offer your almsgiving and prayer to LifeSite News. This is the moment we need all of our viewers, even first-time viewers. Join the mission for life, faith, family, and freedom with LifeSite. Join us now with a financial gift of any amount by clicking the first link in the description below and be a force for good in the world. Also, don't forget to pray with your financial gift. Every little bit helps. So thank you, and may God bless you. This is really the remedy to original sin. He's addressing the areas that, as males and females, we struggle with. You know, women have very little trouble loving. They have a lot of trouble allowing themselves to be loved. Men, we have no trouble allowing ourselves to be loved. We'll soak it all up but we have trouble loving. And so St. Paul is saying, okay, men, love your wives. Ladies, you have to allow yourself to be loved. That's what that submission is, you know, to, to be able to allow yourself to be loved. Do you know that Satan's number one weapon to drag people out of heaven is around destroying marriage? I kid you not. In fact, it's a quote from uh, the message that Sister Lucia received from our Lord and then communicated to Cardinal Kafara, and he made public. And it was this from her letter. The decisive battle between our Lord and the reign of Satan will be over marriage and the family. To unpack that for us, we have a great priest with us. His name is Father Robert Altier, and he's just written a book called God's Plan for Your Marriage, which goes deep into marriage and how to have a great marriage. This is the John Henry Weston Show. Stay tuned. Father Altier, thanks for coming on the program. Well, thanks for having me, John Henry. God bless you.
We always begin with the sign of the cross. If I could get you to lead that for us, please. Absolutely. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Tell us, first way you can just t- start with, a little bit about your background and why you wrote this book. Well, I've been a priest of the Archdiocese of St. Paul, Minneapolis in Minnesota uh, since 1989. And uh, I'm in a parish in South St. Paul, Minnesota at Holy Trinity Parish. And so I've been a priest for going on 34 years now and worked with lots of people in marriage, but never, ever thought of writing a book, never considered the possibility. But back in 2019, I was awakened one night in the middle of the night and just simply told, this is what you're to do for couples preparing for marriage. I wasn't thinking about what I was going to do for couples preparing for marriage because I'd been doing that for 30 years at the time. And then what happened after that, I mean, nothing like that's ever happened before or since, but what happened after that, in my mind, is even more astounding. So that was in first or second week of February, somewhere in 2019. And then every day, with three exceptions until the end of the month, I would sit down to pray. So the first day I sat down and this idea about marriage popped into my head. Well, I wasn't there to think about marriage or pray about marriage. I was just there to to be with our Lord. And I know myself well enough, and I apologized to our Lord, and I said, but I have to write this down because if I don't, I'm just going to sit here and think about this for the rest of the time of prayer because it's just so beautiful. I've never thought of this before in my life. So I wrote it down. No sooner had I set the pen down, and the next thought was in my head. And it was jaw-droppingly beautiful. And this happened now, like I said, till the 28th of February. It ended as quickly as it started. And when I was done, I typed it all up. I had 16 pages of single-space notes in no particular order, just different different thoughts, ideas. They were just beautiful. Most of them I had never thought of in my life. And so then I said, well, okay, if this was for couples preparing for marriage, now what am I supposed to do? This is way more than we can cover in pre-marriage. And as I prayed about it, it became evident that you're supposed to write a book. So Our Lady gets what she wants. And so I wrote a book. And I Personally, of course, I'm the only one who has to believe the stuff I just told you. And so I believe this is heaven's response to the crisis in marriage right now. Um, There is, like I said, there's a lot of stuff I have never thought of, I have never heard of. So there's a lot of brand new stuff in this book. And it's covering the spiritual foundation of marriage. It's it's not so much a how-to book about marriage It's about looking at the spirituality. It's about looking at the spiritual union and then what follows from that. What is it that makes marriage holy? And are we truly living marriage as a sacrament? And I I think that's, that's one of the areas where we've really slipped up. But part of that, you know, you stop and think about it and you say, okay, in the 2000 year history of the church, marriage has always been solid. The church tends usually to address things when they get attacked, and that's when the theology gets deepened and and so on. And I just look back and I say, during the reign of John Paul II, the church's magisterial teaching on marriage doubled during his reign because of the writings that he did. 
So that tells you how little was officially written about marriage because it never really needed to be. It hadn't been attacked. It never had to be developed because everybody lived it. You know, they were married. Everybody grew up in a family. They got married. And, and, but now things have changed. And, and so the beauty now we have these lay theologians, which we have never really had very many of them before, but more than that, both male and female, considering that we approach things so differently as males and females, and they're writing about their sacrament. And so then my question, of course, you've got all these people with all this education that are living this sacrament. Why do you want me to do this? Yeah, I'm a priest. And the it became fairly clear to me that sometimes what happens is somebody on the outside looking at it objectively can see some things a little differently. And since it's not a how-to book, you know, which obviously I couldn't write, but a spiritual point of view that's something that that I could present. And my hope is then some of these theologians can pick this up and run with it. Now, saying that in case any of the reader or the, the listeners might think, oh, if it's a heavy theology book, it's not. It's uh, It's got some profound theology, but it's written at a level that the average person can understand. You don't need to have an advanced degree in theology to understand it. And my, my hope is that the theologians will be able to pick it up but this is not written for theologians. This is written for the average person who is married or preparing for marriage. Every single day, there are new developments in the culture war. You need to stay on top of the news from the front lines around the world. And LifeSite's actually our mission to serve you the truth on life, faith, family, and freedom so that you can be an effective soldier for Christ. Subscribe now and never miss an important development in the culture war that you need to know about, all from a faithful Catholic perspective. And check out the links below to get involved with our reporting and our pro-life partners. Thank you and God bless you. If you wouldn't mind, share with us one of those inspirations, one of those ones where you were sitting down to pray and this thought occurred to you that you thought was just so beautiful, you had to write it down. Give us one that you think has helped more people, um, more married couples that you've worked with. The central point in the book, actually, is the, the one that everything else follows from. So so I'll touch on that one. Uh, and, and that is the question... Yeah, when when you when you look in in the, the Gospels of Saint Matthew and Saint Mark, you know the, the the Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask him, "Can a man divorce his wife for any reason, whatever?" And you know he asks them about it, and they say, "Well, Moses said we could." So yeah, that's from Gen from Deuteronomy twenty four, and then he says, "But that was not God's intention from the beginning." So Pope John Paul had picked up on that and said, "Okay, that means you need to go back to Genesis. You know, this is this is where you need to go." to understand what God wants with marriage, but then he explained it a little differently because then he said, all right, this is our Lord saying, look, um, you know, from the beginning, God made the male and female, and so therefore man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, the two become one flesh. And then Jesus added a line that is nowhere else in sacred scripture, and it simply says, what God has joined, let no man put asunder. So the question is, what does God join in marriage? That's the real essence of it. And because as I was preparing for this, uh, the, the, to write the book, I would ask people, what, what happens to your soul when you get married? Oh, you get all these graces. I said, yeah, that's true. But I said, you get graces in all the other sacraments too. 
And well, yeah, but you know, there's sanctifying. Uh, yeah, you get sanctifying grace, but you get sanctifying grace with the other sacraments too. What actually happens to your soul? I went through the other sacraments. I said, look, you get baptized. Here's what actually happens to your soul. When you go to confession, here's what happens to your soul. When you receive communion, here's what happens to your soul. I said, what happens when you get married? What happens to your soul? Oh, you receive all these graces. I said, no, there's got to be something more than that, because otherwise, why would why would this be a sacrament? So my focus then was, what is it that God joins? And the principle, the point, is the two souls of the persons who are getting married. That is, that's the, that's the central point of the book. Everything else follows from that. You know, then, you know, we, we look then at marriage, you know, God started in creation with marriage. He starts then a new creation. St. Paul says you're a new creation in Christ. He starts the new creation with marriage. And, and that's, of course, the marriage of Christ and his church. And that's, the, that's there, therefore the, the example that married couples are to follow. And so everything follows from that. But that's the central point. That was the thing that, you know, when, when you look at it, um, Cardinal Burke, God bless him, was willing to, to read the book. I had told him what had happened and, and just asked him if he could look it over. He was the church's top authority on marriage and of canon law. And so the question is, is this correct? You know, where else are you going to go? You know, so you, you go to Cardinal Burke and you ask him, is this correct? Because if it is, then this is going to change the way we understand marriage. And if it's not, I'm going to throw this thing away. And, you know, because I only want what's in line with the teaching of the church. And the cardinal signed off on it. And I said, praise the Lord. This is, this is where we're headed then. That's the central point. And, uh, you know, some of the, I mean, it's, there, there's just so much in there that's just, I, I think is so beautiful. And it's just, it's packed. It's just, you know, I, I tend not to waste a lot of space. And so, you know, I tell people, if you're going to underline, underline the parts that aren't important, you'll save a lot of ink. You're going to get asked by scripture scholars, all sorts of people, when they hear you say that, well, how does that square up with scripture? Do you remember the story? Of course, you know it. Uh, but the story in the scripture where the Pharisees or the Sadducees, I can't remember which, but they come to Jesus and they talk about the story about the, uh, the woman who was married by seven husbands. And they all go through. And then in the afterlife, whose wife is she going to be? But then there's a new part of that because we know that marriage changed with into a sacrament by Jesus. Uh, but then you come up with this concept of the two souls unite in marriage. But then he told his apostles, or not his apostles, it was, his, again, disciples coming to ask questions about uh, the afterlife. And he says, in the afterlife, there will be no giving in marriage and so on. Um, and so it was always assumed, I guess, that, you know, there wouldn't be marriage in heaven, but that we would be sort of in relation with everybody there as close as we are here in our married lives. Well, actually, I've got a whole chapter dedicated to that. And, uh, and that's because heaven is a marriage banquet. And, and so Jesus not only mentions that, but it's, it's most clear in the book of Revelation, you know, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Yeah, and and so it's it's for the Jewish people, they didn't have a wedding and then a reception like we tend to do today. Back at the time of Jesus, a marriage feast was a, a week-long thing, and the marriage kind of took place in the midst of it. 
So when he's talking about a marriage banquet, he's talking about the wedding. And it's the marriage banquet of the Lamb. So Jesus is the bridegroom, and the mystical body is the bride. So marriage on, on the, in, in this world, even in the sacrament, ends at the moment of death, the death of the first spouse. So in that particular example you're talking about, even with this, you know, if somebody's married to seven different people because each one died, that woman in that case would have been free to be married to each of those guys because her husband died. So even if that happened today, she could still get married seven times if she wanted to, and in you know, as long as the husband had died. But then whose wife will she be? It won't be because in heaven, the union is even more profound and more intimate than the union that a couple shares in marriage. By intimate, I don't mean the, the sexual part. I just mean every single person. St. John says, we will know even as we are known. And so you will know everybody. Not just, oh, yeah, I recognize that person over there. No, you know them. You will be looking right in the essence of the person because you're looking at God who is looking into the essence of that person. And so you will know them to the, to the degree of your ability. And so all of us together, whether we're male or female, we're member of the bride. And, and so for married couples, they would be united not only with one another, assuming both go to heaven, but with every other person in the mystical body. And, and so, so we, there's not marrying and being given in marriage, but rather there is a union. And, and again, think of what, what we were talking about a minute ago, the souls being united. In heaven, our soul will be united to God, and we will be united with one another. It's an accidental union, not a substantial one. And you know, in, so when the two become one, you don't become the other one. That would be the substantial union. So it's accidental. But even our union with God in heaven will be an accidental union, not a substantial one. Marriage is a prefiguration of heaven. So they, so they won't be married per se in heaven, but they will actually be closer than what their marriage is because of, of the union that they will have with, with one another, with all the members of the body of Christ, and of course, with Jesus, who is the bridegroom of our souls. Now, you said something extremely interesting there, Father. You said marriage, in that sense, is a prefigurement of heaven. I think a lot of couples might often think that their marriage might be a prefigurement of another place, sometimes, especially in the midst of difficulties in marriage. That, that's always the challenge. What are, you, what are you doing to make your marriage look like what you want heaven to be? <laughs> that's actually a very good question. What has been for you... Um, the advice that you've given to married couples that you feel helps them most. Again, when if you look at the book, the, the, the first chapter is about the dignity of the person, who God made us to be in his own image and likeness. And our society has just destroyed people in their understanding of their own dignity, uh, particularly women. We've made women into objects and, and just treat them sometimes like things. And, and so... So the first chapter is just simply dedicated to that. If we can see one another's dignity and treat one another with that and respect that dignity, then the second chapter goes into love. That married people should be the experts in love. After all, they're making a vow to love. 
And yet we don't even know what love is in our society. Yeah, we've got, we, of course, we use the word love for just about everything. I love ice cream and I love this and I love that. And, you know, and, and, and of course, you know, it's all about now making love or whatever, which most of the time has a little or nothing to do with love. And, and so, so it, it's, there's a, a, a explanation and discussion of, of love and what real love is. And, and if couples can understand that and begin to live that, that's, you know, but that can really, I mean, you can grasp with your mind, but you have to have a prayer life. That's the thing that's most important, because if you are beginning to develop that love for Jesus, you're going to love your spouse whom Jesus loves. And, and that's, that's the greatest way of getting rid of sin, of, of changing your own life, of being able to bring greater healing to the marriage and to be able to build that marriage up. You know, the, one of the points that's made in the book is love never remains the same. It either increases or decreases. And so you either love your spouse more today than you did yesterday, or you love your spouse less today than yesterday. What are you doing to make it more? So the, the first chapter, as I mentioned, is, is about our natural dignity. Every human being on the face of the earth is made in the image and likeness of God and has dignity, which, by the way, cannot change. You know, we can be treated in a way that violates our, our own dignity. Other people can violate our dignity. But even with that, our dignity cannot even be reduced in the slightest because it is given by God. So that dignity is there no matter what. Then, for those who are baptized, now we have a supernatural dignity. We have been elevated to a supernatural level of acting and being. And we've been given sanctifying grace where we've been made sons and daughters of God. And so how can we accept that and live that if we can't even accept our natural dignity? And, and so, so that's the piece that, that I try to, to really work toward with, with people to understand their own dignity so that they can understand their spouse's dignity so that they can truly love that person more. I'd love your take on this. One of the books, I think it's by Dr. Dobson, he talks about uh, the best thing a husband can do for his children is to love his wife. And there's a corollary to that, though. The best thing that a wife can do is respect her husband. It's it's funny that he doesn't use the same back love back. Do you have any comment on that or thought about it? When you look at St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians in, in chapter 6, it's one of the most beautiful, in chapter 5 rather, one of the most beautiful passages in Scripture. And yet it's one of the most hated because people don't understand it. You know, husbands love your wives, wives be submissive to your husband. And, and you know, then talking about how the, the wife must respect her husband. I'm assuming that that's where he's getting that from. But the problem is, and by the way, we go into that whole passage in, in the book and explain it. And people miss the fact that that begins a verse earlier. It doesn't begin in verse 22. It begins in 21, where St. Paul says, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. And, and so he is not asking anything of one that he isn't asking of the other. But the thing that I point out with that passage is that this is really the remedy to original sin. It, it, he's addressing the areas that as males and females, we struggle with. You know, women have very little trouble loving. They have a lot of trouble allowing themselves to be loved. Men, we have no trouble allowing ourselves to be loved. We'll soak it all up. 
but we have trouble loving. And so St. Paul is saying, okay, men, love your wives. Keep doing what you do well, but do what you don't do well. Ladies, you have to allow yourself to be loved. That's what that submission is, you know, to, to be able to allow yourself to be loved. And, and so, so keep loving, but allow yourself to be loved. So if that proper respect is there, which again goes both ways, man has to respect his wife, a woman has to respect her husband. If that proper sense of respect is there, then that love can be there. So, so I would, I would agree with you that, you know, I think he should have used the same word, you know, but it may be that the way that a lot of women would look at it is, well, I love my husband, but I don't have a lot of respect for him, or I roll my eyes, or I sigh, or whatever, and kids pick that up. They'll, they'll, they watch their parents, and you can talk till you're blue in the face, but your kids will do what you do, and, and they'll pick up those cues, and they'll look at it and say, well, this is how dad treats mom, I can too. And if this is how mom thinks of dad, well, I can too. And so, so there has to be that proper respect. There has to be the proper charity, that kind of love that St. That Paul talks about with regard to marriage. In fact, in that point, every single time in the New Testament, when love is spoken of with regard to marriage, the word that's used in Greek is agape. So there are four different Greek words for love. And Agape is the highest kind of love. It's the way that God loves us. It's a selfless kind of love. That's what St. Paul is asking married couples to do for one another. And so obviously, if love, my definition of love that I put in the book is doing what's best for the other person. So it's understanding that dignity, treating the person that way, which obviously is going to require the respect that, that you brought up. But then it goes just beyond the respect. I mean, you can respect somebody, you can respect their dignity, but you, you know, you're not going to have necessarily that selfless kind of love. That's what couples have to have for one another. The church has experienced, especially over the last eight, nine years, a sort of internal falling apart. Uh, with regard to what's going on, particularly around the marriage, Mary and fam marriage and family. Um, you know, early on in his pontificate, uh, Pope Francis made headlines everywhere talking about cohabitation being real marriage, having the grace of real marriage. He was talking about couples he saw in northern Argentina who were cohabiting. And he said because of their fidelity, he, he said that's a real marriage, not the grace of real marriage. You had this new, not new, actually, it's quite old, but his promotion of Father James Martin who's known throughout the church for wanting to change the church's teaching regarding homosexuality, uh, promotes uh, homosexual unions, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and yet this is going on in the church. And of course, as you might know, it's, it's progressing. It's not only, you know, it wasn't, wasn't a one-off. He was first invited to speak at the World Meeting of Families, which is a Vatican event, then asked to be a consultant on the Pontifical Council for Social Communications. He was then met with the Pope privately, not once, but twice now, and uses those endorsements from the Pope to back what he's doing, which is literally to change the church uh, with regard to homosexuality. If I can have your take on that, please. First of all, the church's teaching cannot change. So we need to start with that. Um, and marriage is, uh, the sacrament of marriage is between a baptized male and a baptized female. And the purpose of marriage is first and foremost, procreation education of children. Secondly, 
the unity of the couple. So you look at some of these things and you can say, well, if you just look at you know a natural marriage as opposed to a sacramental marriage, yeah, so a couple goes to a judge and the state says that they're married. There's a natural marriage that's there, provided that they, they intend that this is going to be for life and, and so on. It's not sacramental. And so if you have two people living together and they're trying to play house, essentially, you know, acting like they're married, but, but they're not, you can have goodwill toward one another. You can, you know, but, but you actually don't have true charity because charity seeks the best of the other. You don't sin against another person. You know, if, if there's something that's true charity, you want to build the other person up, sin pulls the person down. So to even try to suggest that that's a real marriage, it's not even a natural marriage. The state doesn't even recognize that as a, as a civil marriage, as a legal marriage. And, and so that, that just is not possible. And, and so, so we, we need to begin with that. But then when you look at the, the point of the homosexuality, I remember when there was all these, the, these votes back a number of years ago in the United States about these marriage amendments, and there was a book that came out and it was written by, by a woman who was one of the leaders in the pro-family, pro-marriage and family movement, and the guy who was the leader in the pro-homosexual marriage uh, marriage um, idea. And the point that they made right at the beginning is whoever wins this battle goes to the center, and whoever loses goes to the periphery. So this is a political game that they're playing, and, and that we need to be clear about that. And so again, when you when you look at it, you can, for instance, you can you can look at what they're trying to do with the priesthood and say that well, we should have women be priests. Well, being male is part of the essence of the priesthood. It's not possible. It's not just a matter that well, yeah, we could allow this or that. You know, well, we've allowed married men to be be ordained deacons. Well, celibacy is a discipline. It's not it's not of the essence of the marriage, but. Being male is a part of part of uh, the essence of, of the priesthood. Well, part of the essence of the sacrament of holy matrimony is a male and a female, and and so two males, two females, or even two or three or four or five, as they're trying to do these days, that doesn't work. It cannot work because for a marriage to be valid, there also has to be the intention that not only would it be permanent but that it will be faithful and that it is open to life. The two become one. It's, you know, and that's exactly what Jesus said. The two become one. And, and so if that's the case, you can't have three or four and you can't have two men or two women. You know, I had a brilliant philosophy professor who wrote lots of books and so on. And when it came right down to it, somebody asked him about this question. He's going off on all the philosophy. And finally he stopped. He just said, the parts don't fit. It's like, okay, that's about as simple as you can get. It's like, no, God made us complementary. Uh, and when he started, he started with Adam. Oh, the fullness of humanity was in Adam. He created Eve. And now when the male and the female are united together, there is a fullness of humanity again. Two men don't have that. Two women don't have that. Only a man and a woman united together have the fullness of humanity. And, and that's what God intended once again from the beginning. 
So again, you, you look at what Jesus tells us to do, go back to the beginning, what did God intend? We see a male and a female. And But what you have to understand here from a deeper perspective in what's going on, the church is the bride of Christ, okay? Now, the church has not yet consummated her marriage with her bridegroom. Jesus consummated his marriage, St. Augustine said, on the marriage bed of the cross 2,000 years ago. The church still has to consummate her marriage because this is a spiritual thing. So obviously, in a regular marriage, yeah, you can't have it at two different times. That's not going to work. The two are, are united together. But when we're talking about Jesus and the church, we're talking about spiritual, so time and space don't matter. So the church, the saints tell us, the fathers of the church tell us, the church is going to be crucified at some point in history. I personally think we're going to see it. But nonetheless, that will be the church's consummation of her marriage to her spouse, to show her fidelity her charity, her love for her spouse, Jesus Christ, the church is going to be crucified as her spouse was. She has to consummate her, her marriage. That is, I think, where we're headed. So as heinous as these things are that are happening, if we can see it in that spiritual way, that's this is the attempt to be able to get the bride away from the bridegroom, to to bring, to, to sully the bride, to to try to, to do something to cause infidelity or whatever it is they're trying to cause to make sure that, that this doesn't happen, they're not going to be able to stop it. In fact, they're going to be the cause of it because it's going to be just like what happened 2,000 years ago. Ask yourself, who was it ultimately who's responsible for the death of our Lord? It was the high priests. It's like, well, what do we have going on now? Same thing. They used secular people to do it, but it was the religious authorities that were behind it. And that's what we're going to see with the church, too. So, so whatever their purpose is, I don't understand exactly. I'm looking at it from the other point of view. It's like they're the ones that are going to cause the very thing they're trying to keep from happening. And, and so in their, in their malice, just like 2,000 years ago, God's going to bring about great good from that. And, and so, again, be very clear, the church's teaching on marriage cannot change. It, if, if somebody tries to change it or change any other basic teaching of the church, we must reject that. We must, absolutely must remain faithful to Jesus. And we can see it from that spiritual perspective. This is the time where we have the opportunity to be able to say, I will be faithful to the bridegroom of my soul that we have that chance now that nobody has had in 2,000 years to be able to do this. That's what this is about on the bigger picture. I mean, again, practically speaking, yeah, these are horrible things. But in that bigger picture, if we can understand that and say, all right, what is absolutely critical is that we absolutely must remain faithful to Jesus, no matter what. The way I always put it to people I just say, look, I don't care what color cassock someone's wearing. It's the black of a priest, the purple of a bishop, the red of a cardinal, or the white of a pope. If someone says something different from what Jesus said and what different from what the church has taught, stick with Jesus in the church. And it's just that simple. And, and so, you know, how many are going to remain faithful? You look at what happened 2,000 years ago. 
it's not that there were a huge number of people at the time Jesus was crucified, but there was only one who ultimately remained absolutely faithful. That was Our Lady. You know, you can look at the small group with the apostles, and they finally got their act together, and, and they were faithful. But the vast majority left. I mean, when Jesus spoke about the Eucharist, the majority of them left. They said, we can't, we can't do this. Well, guess what? The Eucharist and marriage are the two sacraments most closely aligned symbolically. People can't handle what the church teaches about marriage because they can't handle what the church teaches about the Eucharist. So we've got fewer than 25% of people who call themselves Catholic saying that they believe in the Holy Eucharist. Well, should we be surprised that they can't handle what the church teaches about marriage? So the question for every single person is, are we going to remain faithful? We know the church ultimately is going to remain faithful, but how many of her children, how many of us who are part of the bride of Christ will remain faithful? Who is going to be willing to be crucified with him? Because that's what the church is, is going to have to endure at some point. And, and so are we willing to love him to the end? Because that's what St. John told us that Jesus did for us. He loved his own. He loved them to the end. He poured out his life so that we could have his life. And now we have a chance to be able to do the same in return. Absolutely beautiful, Father. God's Plan for Your Marriage is the name of the book. Father, where can we pick it up? You can get it at the website, godsplanforyourmarriagebook.com, or you can get it from Sophia Institute Press. So godsplanforyourmarriagebook.com or Sophia Institute Press. Father Robert Altier, thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you, John Henry. God bless you. Thanks for all your good work. Keep it up. Will do, Father. And God bless all of you. And we'll see you next time. Every single day, there are new developments in the culture war. You need to stay on top of the news from the front lines around the world. At LifeSite, it's actually our mission to serve you the truth on life, faith, family, and freedom so that you can be an effective soldier for Christ. Subscribe now and never miss an important development in the culture war that you need to know about, all from a faithful Catholic perspective. And check out the links below to get involved with our reporting and our pro-life partners. Thank you and God bless you.